cases pop up all the time, but what happens when the reason for the mystery is the justice system itself? Once you hear the details from today's stories, you may be wondering how this particular Austrian official still has his job and his reputation intact. Hello and welcome back to Mysteries Abroad podcast. I am your host, Justin, and I am joined again by my wife, Megan. Hey, everybody. We missed <laughs> Megan in the last episode. She had a sore throat, and so she wasn't yeah. on here. I had to do that one by myself. Hope you all enjoyed that one. I think it's much better when there's both of us on here because then we can have like this back and forth discussion. I know, and I really love Justin telling me these scary yeah. stories <laughs> and true crime, which, by the way, if you haven't listened to last week's, Definitely give it a listen. Um, Justin actually tricked me, and he played that song for me. The Bloody Sunday song, yeah. Yeah, and I had no idea what it was. I didn't know, like, the story behind it or anything. We were just sitting in the living room, and he starts playing the song, and I just, like, lean back on the couch, yeah. and I'm like, oh, this is so relaxing. I love this. And... D he didn't I didn't even tell, tell her. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't say anything. I was just playing the song. I was actually just playing it for research for the podcast episode, and Megan just happened to be in the room, and she's like, "Man, this this song is a whole vibe right here. This is so relaxing." Which is and funny I like, because cool. I mean, I typically do listen to like soft jazz music, like music from the 1940s and 50s, and so it was like stuff that I always listen to, and. I apparently thought it was very relaxing, so yeah. apparently this spooky song is not very spooky <laughs> to me, but definitely check out that last podcast if you haven't yeah, yeah. listened to it already. Yeah, the Gloomy Sunday and the Smile Club podcast episode, mm -hmm. that one was, was very interesting. Megan was shocked whenever, um, after I had recorded it and I edited the podcast, she was listening to it, and she's like, what? Are you serious? <laughs> so it, was, it was a really good episode. If I had felt some bad vibes for the next few days after I heard that song. Would you have felt bad about it? I might have felt bad about it. <laughs> you totally tricked me. So for today's episode, though, we are actually going to be in Austria, and we're going to be talking about, it's really one story, but it covers several murders. And no, this is not a serial murder type of story. This is just several separate murders that occurred, and we're going to talk about how they really come together. But these are... Uh, what I like to call solved unsolved murders because they have technically been solved. They technically have a conviction, but there are just too many strange factors here that I kind of think that they haven't actually gotten to the bottom of it. So let's get into today's story. So we're picking up this story on June 6th, 1990, and we're catching up with a lady named Angelica Foger. Now, she's a 32-year-old wife and mother of two, and she lives in Gran, Austria. Angelica works as an accountant at a cheese factory. Not the Cheesecake Factory, but at a cheese factory. <laughs> and it is called a factory, but it's not like, don't, don't have in your mind that this is like a 500-employee type factory. This is a very small town, a very small, like, uh, family-run type business. Gran is actually in uh, the Tyrolean Mountains in Austria, and so it really looks a lot like Switzerland. If you're familiar with pictures of Switzerland, if you've ever been there, uh, this is exactly what Gran looks like, just a very small community down in the valley, just kind of tucked into the mountains there. Now, like I said, Angelica is an accountant there, but she usually gets to work very early. She arrives before most people do, and on this morning, June 6th of 1990, she arrives early in the morning. We are uncertain of the events that unfold over the next few minutes. 
But a few minutes after she arrives, she is found by a young man named Martin Koffler, and he also works there at the cheese factory. Martin comes across Angelica. She has been raped, and she's been stabbed four times, and she is alive when he finds her, but she dies a few minutes later. Uh, Martin, immediately after finding her, he runs to a neighbor's house, which is right across the street from, from the cheese factory, and he asks them to call the police. Of course, this is 1990, so it's not like he had a cell phone on him. He had to run to the next house over. He runs over there, he calls the police, and then he goes back to the cheese factory. The police arrive quickly, as well as an ambulance and everything, but it's too late. Angelica has passed away from her injuries. Now, while the police are there with Martin, Martin confesses to this murder. He says that he killed Angelica. What? Yeah. He says that he did it. He said that the reason that he did it was uh, sexual motivation. He said that he wanted to rape her, and so all of this is lining up. But there's one big thing. Number one, he makes that confession without a lawyer being present. He makes it to a police officer who happens to be best friends with the owner of the cheese factory. And he also has a blood alcohol level of 0.19, which is extremely high. This is crazy high. What was he doing at work that day? I have no idea. But that is like twice the legal limit for most countries. I mean, in the U.S., 0.08 is legally drunk, and he's 0.19. So he's very, very drunk at the time that he confesses to this murder. So even with the confession, of course, police have to go into the investigation mode, and they have to look at the scene. Uh, to help them with this, they call in a man named Dr. Walter Robble. Dr. Robble is a medical examiner. He's a forensic medical examiner. So he's actually come out to the scene. He wants to see the scene. And then, of course, he will later do the autopsy on the victim as well. And one thing that he notes at the scene is the fact that Angelica has defensive wounds on her hands. She also has, in one of her hands, about 20 hairs that are presumably pulled from her attacker. And these are long blonde hairs. Now, it's immediately noted that these hairs do not match the boy that has given the confession. Right. That was going to be my first question. Yeah. Does Martin, that's his name, right? Right. Does yeah. Martin have long They don't hair? match Martin's hair. Mm. However, you know, they're still like, okay, we've got him here. We've got the confession. Dr. Robble goes back and he does the autopsy. And in his autopsy report, he says, quote, the head hair is dark brown. Talking about Angelica's hair. The head hair is dark brown. He then goes on to describe the length of her hair. And then he says, quote, Insofar as it is possible to judge from exterior inspection, the hair-bearing skin appears uninjured. So he is saying, in essence, she has dark brown hair, and hair was not ripped out of her head. Because he doesn't see anywhere that her head had any type of injury or any place that hair would have been, you know, ripped out or anything so he's saying the top of her head is intact and good to go okay how much hair is this 20 hairs okay so that's a lot i mean yeah so it's saying it like i mean when i brush my yeah hair, no it's not know, a hair, hair or two. is gonna come out and you're not gonna see like this bald spot on my head so right yeah so it's definitely i mean it's 20 which isn't a lot but i guess you know if you grab someone's head hard enough that's to rip enough. 20 hairs out you would be able to see that mm -hmm. you know so when it was announced that the hair didn't match Martin, her family was like demanding an answer. They said, hold on a second. It doesn't match the person. She has this. Everyone says that it's so important. But now you're telling us that the person you're charging with the murder doesn't even have hair that matches the hair that was in her hand. And it doesn't match her hair either. Something 
something isn't right. So Dr. Robble says, well, if you can give me a sample of her hair, I'll retest it against the hairs that we have, you know, the 20 hairs that were in her hand. And it just so happened that her husband had a lock of her hair at home. And so he gives Dr. Robble this lock of hair and he goes through it and he says, so it doesn't match her hair exactly. However, around her temple area, she had white or very light colored hair. And her family is like, no, she didn't. Not at all. She didn't have that. She had dark brown hair all over. And it, when you look at the autopsy photos and the crime scene photos, she has dark hair all over. And I have one of those photos. It'll go up on the Instagram post for this. So you can go up there and take a look. Yeah, I mean, she has dark hair. And her husband, her family, everybody is saying, no, this is absolutely crazy. This doesn't match her. It doesn't match the person that's being charged with the murder. Like, we, obviously, the family wants some, some closure to this, but they don't want the wrong person to end up in prison either. They want the real person to end up, not just the one that's maybe the convenient option for the police. So why would the ME say that? Uh... That's a tricky question, and I, I think that it could go pretty deep. You know, one thing I think that stands out initially in this one is that the police officer that takes the report, he is good friends with the owner of the cheese factory. And I was going to get to this a little bit later because this detail comes out later. The owner of the cheese factory, his son, was there that morning. And has blonde hair. Yeah. Yeah. Was already there that morning but was not questioned by the police or anything because they had a confession from Martin, which was not smart, Martin. Yeah, why? why would he say that? But there's enough evidence here to say it wasn't uh, it wasn't him. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, where did these 20 hairs come from? It wasn't hers and it wasn't his, so it has to be a third party. Now, it's possible maybe Martin assisted in this. Maybe Martin was part of this, but the hairs that every person on the scene that day said is so important they don't match either one of them so we've got a major issue with their with their conviction here so another thing that happened is they found the shirt that martin was wearing his shirt was in his bedroom it was laid out supposedly right on the floor with the blood on it and it has a lot of blood on the shirt but when you look at the shirt, and several investigators have looked at the shirt, and they said this isn't consistent with someone who would have blood splatter from having stabbed someone. You know, because if you're stabbing someone, it's like splattering blood. And when you look at the picture of the shirt, it's more like um, imagine you have a t shirt and you lay it face down on the floor and you reach down and you grab it from the back and you kind of wad it up in your hand with one hand and then you were to smear that shirt into some blood it it almost has like a tie-dye look to it like it's large chunks but then there are little sections that didn't get blood on it because they were bunched up and so they what everyone else is saying is hold on a second it kind of makes it look like someone tried to make this shirt look like it was worn for the murder like it the blood isn't right it's just smudged on there instead right. of splattered my mind is already speculating like the owner of the cheese factory his son was there. What if Martin saw this happening when he got to work and then the son of the, the owner said, okay, you've caught me, but we're going to say this was you or you're next or, you know, something. something. Um, and is kind of like framing him. Right. <laughs> 
I mean, he they could have just tricked him into it. You had a blood alcohol level of point one nine. They could have yeah. told him he did it and he believed it at that point. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that is way past being drunk. That is very high. I don't How know why he was that drunk. Yeah, I don't know why he was that drunk first thing in the morning arriving at work. I'll never understand how people actually get that drunk. Like, Without I just guess, blacking out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have three drinks, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to be sick. Like, yeah, I, I have, have to stop. To stop. Yeah. <laughs> like, how are how do people drink that much? And some people can. Yeah. So, I it's mean, like nausea I, doesn't I'll catch never up understand. Like, I can't actually get into the mind of someone who has drank that much because I, I – have never been yeah. like I don't the nausea would get you before you got to that point yeah you know that would force you to kind of stop drinking so I don't understand yeah. how to get through that that phase of it but whatever that's that's neither here nor there so anyway Martin gets convicted of this murder in 1991 and Walter Walter Foger this is the husband of Angelica he says this is still not right I don't believe that it's Martin I have to get to the bottom of this so he goes to another doctor he wasn't getting anywhere with Dr. Robble. So he goes to another doctor called Dr. Rainer Hinn. And he was the director of the Innsbruck Institute of Forensic Medicine at that time. And he goes to Dr. Hinn. He says, look, let me tell you about this hair evaluation that Dr. Robble did and explains the whole story to him. Dr. Hinn agrees to conduct his own evaluation, which is great news for the Foger family because you now have another medical examiner saying, yeah, I will look into this because something's not right here. He says, and I'll do this as soon as I get back in a few days. He was going somewhere else in Austria to give a lecture. And so he's like, as soon as I get back, I'll do this. Unfortunately, on his way back from giving this lecture, he gets in a car accident and dies. No. Yeah. Which is also suspicious. also suspicious. Could be coincidental, but, you know, that just doesn't look good. So Mr. Foger goes to Dr. Robble because he has no one else now to go to. He goes to Robble and he says, look, I talked to Dr. Hen. He said he believed me. He said that he was going to look into this case again, and I'm asking you again to take this up, look into it. Something's not right. Dr. Robble says, Dr. Hen said nothing to me about this. He has no report about this. There's no notes. And basically, no, I'm not going to do anything. So the Foger family, along with Martin Koffler's attorney, they start talking, and they're like, this this isn't right. We None of us believe that it was Martin. We need to go back to the court system. So they go to the court system twice trying to reopen the case. Both times it gets denied because they say, look, we've got all this evidence. We need to reopen the case. And the courts are like, we are not doing it. Absolutely not. For whatever reason, they would refuse to take another look at this thing. What kind of chokehold does the cheese factory have on these people? Like, they're acting like... Okay, if it is someone at the cheese factory, if it is the owner's son, like, we don't even want to speculate that, or we don't even want to look into that. Yeah, I think that it possibly could have been someone at the cheese factory that did it. However, I don't think they're the ones so much with the power in this situation. I think it's Dr. Robble, the medical oh, examiner. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that but why is he not even willing to, like, look into anything further yeah, that I don't, happened there? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why he's covering it up for them, seemingly. And I don't know if he is covering it up for them or if he just kind of got caught doing something stupid in the beginning. Like, he said, oh, it's it's these hairs, and oh, it's the boy, and then the hairs don't match the boy. Oh, so he's embarrassed. You think so he's embarrassed, embarrassed, and he doesn't want to go back. I think mm. it could be that he just botched the investigation from the beginning and refuses to admit that he's wrong. 
yeah. and he's so it could it could go either I way. See that, yeah. There's two options. So so the reason Dr. Bravel is so important is because he's actually the president of the Austrian Society for Forensic Medicine, which is a really big thing in Austria because Austria is actually one of the first countries in the world that began studying forensic medicine. They were like pioneers in this field of forensic medicine that now everyone does. Mm-hmm. But he is the president of that society. He's also a professor at the Institute for Forensic Medicine, which is at the Medical University in Innsbruck. Still today? Yes, all of this? so still wow. today. Yeah, he stays active in all this stuff. He's still the guy when there is a crime scene that no one can figure out or an autopsy that makes no sense to anyone. This is, the ma- this is like the top man that you go and talk to. He's the best one there. Wow. It's so, okay. incredible. Is this the only case that just seems really messed no. up? No, I actually found several, several cases while I was studying, and it's they're very similar to this one. All of them are. It's kind of like um, it seems like they're mostly cases where the initial investigators there or the police say, hey, this is what we think it is, and then Robble signs on board with it, and then there's no change. It doesn't matter what kind of evidence comes back out later. There's like zero change to any of this stuff, and I, I've found several of these, and I'll give you one of them, matter of fact, because I mean these are very long stories, so I don't have time to tell you all these, but I found like four or five of these stories where it's it's just unbelievable. That is wild. I mean, why is he so credible then? If he, I don't if know. If he's got all these cases that are just like so suspicious, I don't know. And I I kind of look back through his history, and it seemed like you know he studied, he got his degree and all that, and, and then did his apprenticeship and everything in Switzerland. And then just kind of came back to Austria, and he runs the show. I mean, he has he has all the authority there when it comes to forensic medicine, it seems. Very interesting. I mean, I would love to know about more things that he's worked on and, like, killed it. Like, I shouldn't have said killed it. but yeah. um, <laughs> Where he's done good work. Done a good job. Yeah, I want to hear those stories, yeah. too, because I feel like, you know, you kind of need to, to weigh it out, you know, and just figure out, yeah. like, how many of these cases has he worked on and how many just seem extremely suspicious and maybe, you know. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure as a medical examiner in his position, this guy probably does who knows how many autopsies a year. I mean, it's probably many. He probably investigates many, many, many crime scenes and things. So surely he has a lot of ones that he has solved, ones that were very credible, ones that were just put together properly, but it does bring into question when there are cases that are completely um, unbelievable, how do a few of these get in? Even if it is only five or six, you have to ask yourself, what what's happening here? You know, if it, yeah. it, is it you that's covering this up or what is what is the motivation here? And why is no one questioning this enough to the point of like his job being yeah. in danger? That I don't know. So let me t- so let me tell you one of the other stories. One of, this one is about a young man named Raven Volrath. His family was from Germany, and Raven goes down to Austria. He's down there with some friends, and they're staying in like an apartment or in a condo kind of thing. He was staying there over Christmas, and his family said they usually heard from him very often, except the last time they heard from him was like on Christmas Eve, and so they waited, and then it got past New Year's, and they hadn't heard from him again. They said something's wrong, so they tried calling him, calling him, calling him, can't get through. Um, they tried calling his friends and his friends said, yeah, the last time we saw him, he got into the car with some girl and they left and that was on Christmas Eve and we haven't seen him since then. And so his parents 
called the police in Germany and in Austria and basically got nowhere. No one was willing to do anything to investigate this. So they said, all right, we're driving down to Austria. We're going to get this figured out. Now, keep in mind, this is December of 2005. Or actually, we've moved into January of 2006 now by the time they get to Austria. Okay, so this is like 25 years later. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Dr. Robble has been uh, – these cases span decades that I found that where he was – the man investigating these things. Wow. This is incredible. So his parents get to Austria, and they find his car there, where it should have been. The police could have just gone over there and looked, but they didn't. His parents find his car, and his car has his IDs in it, his bank cards in it, everything. And it's just sitting in the parking lot. Of course, they call the police, and they said, hey, his car is here. All of his belongings are here. He has to be here, but he's not. So something is wrong. Y'all need to come investigate. And the police did come and investigate. They sort of questioned some of the roommates, but didn't get too serious about anything and just said, oh, I don't know, he's an adult, he's he's just not here, he's left for whatever reason, and, and basically dropped it at that. They weren't really interested in pursuing this further to really figure, figure out where he was. Six months later, his body was found. He was wearing very little clothing, basically just socks, t-shirt, underwear, uh, and he was about two and a half kilometers away from the apartment where he was last seen. The police conducted an investigation, and they concluded this is their story of events of what led to the death of Raven. They said that on December 24, 2005, in Austria, where the temperature was minus 11 degrees Celsius that night, Raven was sleeping in the apartment. He got hot <laughs> while he was in bed. <laughs> yeah, he got hot. And didn't say, let me crack the window, let me throw the blanket off. He no. Said, let me go sleep outside. Raven said, let me take my mattress, <laughs> walk outside, wearing nothing but socks, underwear, and a t-shirt, carry this mattress two and a half kilometers down the road, then down a steep embankment to the edge of the river, where I will then lay on the mattress and freeze to death in the night and die right here. That was the story that the police came up with. Does that? Nobody does that. Nobody does, Nobody does that. that. You so don't. When you get hot, I think we've all been hot at nighttime. You open a window. You open a window. You throw the blanket off. You turn on the fan. There's there's a lot of options. The something. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of options before heading off into the freezing cold night to freeze to death while carrying your mattress down the road. Yeah. No, but even if you go, if you say I'm hot and I want to go sit on the porch and cool off, that's one thing. You don't carry your mattress mm -mm. down the road no. to cool off. He died in his bed, and yes. the mattress was taken somewhere. Yeah, something. Yeah. Something like that had to happen. So, of course, this is just an absolutely ridiculous hypothesis. To me, this one is even more suspicious than the first story you told. It really is. This is this is just absolutely insane to me. Dr. Robble did not go to the scene for this one. Another medical examiner did. He got there. He saw the scene. He heard what the police story was, the story that they came up with, and he said, no, it is, I, I can't tell you right now while I'm on the, on the scene exactly what happened to him without, you know, further investigation, but I can tell you this, that it is highly probable he did not die here. This boy didn't just walk out here, leaving his warm apartment to freeze to death at the edge of the river. That's not what happened. And he said that. He said, this is, this is not likely. I don't, yeah. I don't believe this story. So his parents learn what the police theorized happened and they learn that there's a medical examiner that went to the scene that said 
I don't believe the police story. So they said, hey, we need this to be investigated. We want a forensic doctor to go through this case and do the autopsy and figure out what's happened. The forensic doctor that gets selected for this is none other than Dr. Walter Robble. He's the one in charge of, <laughs> of this autopsy. He does the autopsy and said, well, I can't tell you for certain that the police story is correct, but I can tell you this. I do think he just died of natural causes out there. I think that nothing happened to him, and there were no injuries, nothing like that. Like he just So there were no injuries on him, though? According to Dr. Robble, okay, there were no injuries. everybody else, were there any injuries? Well, he said... He said that the body was partly decomposed because it had been laying out there for six months. He said there oh, was a little yeah. bit of decomposition and stuff. And so I can't say that there were any injuries on the body mm. is what he leaves it at. Mm. So the family still doesn't like this story because the police are sticking with this. He just walked off into the night story. The family says this is not right. We want to look into this further. So they get the autopsy photos. And in the photos, which I have one of the photos, and I'll, I'll add that to the, I feel like this this uh, podcast is full of, I'm going to add this photo to the Instagram post, but I'll add that picture there so you can take a look. In the photo, it is plainly evident that there are two punctures in his t-shirt that he was wearing when they found him. Not like animals scavenged or anything like that or ripped or something. It looks like two puncture wounds through the t-shirt as if it was a knife that you know, stabbed him mm -hmm. inside of it. Now, of course, he was out there for six months. Lots of things could have happened with the body. The shirt got, you know, rained on a dozen times. Who knows what? So it almost looks like there's no staining there. There's no telling. The river's right there. It could have washed him off a little bit. Who knows? But it's clear that these puncture marks were there. So the family says, hey, Dr. Robble, we want to see that shirt that you collected because you're telling us there was no injury, but when we're looking at the picture, it looks like there was. And he said, oh, it's too late for that. We've already burned the shirt. The shirt no longer. That's evidence. The shirt no longer exists. Is your mind blown? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just sitting here like with my mind turning yeah. wheels. Yeah. How can he just, how can he destroy evidence without not. So burning? that's something I don't know. Because if the case has been ruled an accident. If the police say, hey, we are finished with our investigation, it's been concluded that this was a complete accident, he died of natural causes, and this doctor says, yeah, I agree with you, he had case no injuries, is case is closed, and we don't have to keep that shirt forever. So it's possible that they let it go. When are we going to start keeping evidence even though a case is closed? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like a lot of things could be solved. And I just think about, like, the families and how, like, sad this is for them that they really don't feel like they have closure because they don't believe what the ME says happened. Right. But he won't open the case back up either yeah. to and, investigate further. And, you know, realistically, I'm sure there are a lot of cases where a family believes that justice wasn't served. Yeah. You know, you didn't get to the bottom of this case. And all the professionals are like, we did. we did. And, and sometimes, you know, due to grief or whatever circumstances, the family has a hard time seeing that. And that, that is understandable. But then there are cases like this where it pops up and it's like, there is just, there's no way. There's way too much evidence yeah. to say that the professionals are the ones in the wrong here. This, this doesn't line up. Your story isn't, it isn't jiving. In Angelica's case, the family went back wanting to get the hairs because they wanted to have 
a second opinion on that, on those 20 hairs, the hairs were gone. They found the plastic Ziploc bag that the hairs were kept in, in the evidence locker, but the hairs were not inside the bag. It's like, who, how, how did that happen? Someone had to open the Ziploc bag and remove the 20 hairs and leave the Ziploc bag behind. That makes no sense whatsoever. This isn't even like you're saying we got rid of that evidence after the case or or we were moving from one locker to the other and we lost it or something. This is the actual hairs are missing from the Ziploc bag. That's destruction of evidence. That's obviously just crazy. But I found so many of these cases that are tied to this doctor. One time he was used as a like as a counselor on a case where they suspected that a child was being um, abused. And the social worker asked him, said, let me show you these injuries. And the, and the child was still living. said, let me show you these injuries. Do you think he got this from a fall or do you think it is child abuse? Because I feel pretty strongly that it's child abuse and you're the top medical expert here. And he looked at it and said, no, this is consistent with a fall, and here's all the reasons why. And she said, okay, then I'll say it's a fall. And a few months later, the boy died from child abuse, and it was found out that it was. He was beaten. And she was a 20-year social worker. She lost her job and was fined and got in all kinds of trouble because she was the one that said he wasn't being abused. Of course, she said, no, wait, I went to a professional. I went to Dr. Robble. He yeah. he assured me over and over that this was not abuse. And I said, doesn't matter. You're the one that made the call. And Dr. Robble got in zero trouble over that. No questions asked. Nothing. This is why it's so important, too, to always listen to your gut. Like, even after going to professionals, listen to your gut about what is happening, especially yeah. in situations like that. Like, you just have to. Like, you cannot yeah. risk it. Oh, there's awful. it is it is and there's just story after story like this that are just tied to this man and i think it's so strange because i'm i'm certainly not saying that this guy is out there committing murders i'm not saying that he's you know some serial murderer or something like that but at the same time it's like how many of these cases are you either messing up on accident or on purpose you know is there some type of bribery happening like you said who who's holding the power here why are these cases so blatantly being covered up it's, 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 it's really appalling. All of this reminds me, though, of one time that I read about where Dr. Robble was asked the question, is there such a thing as the perfect murder? And his response was, it always depends on how much effort is put into solving a case. In any case, the perfect murder is the one that isn't actually discovered. So Ooh, he's saying, it's yeah, he's like, to, to commit a perfect murder, just commit a death that everyone just thinks is a death, essentially. And if there's not much effort put into finding it, then no one's ever going to find out. I hope he kind of hears that quote and is like, yeah. oh, I didn't mean it that and, way. Like, right, yeah. And it's one of those things that's like, okay, I totally get what you're saying. That that does yeah. make perfect sense. Sure, any of us could say the perfect murder is the one that no one finds. No one's exactly. But, but it, not. yeah, when there's a lot of speculation on you personally, mm-hmm. you might should shy away from saying things like that. I don't know. That just kind of adds a little fuel to the, the flames, I believe. Sure, I think we've all misspoken before and or been taken out of context before, but yeah, that's a weird one. It's yeah, and when you're dealing with things like murder, mm-hmm. it's, it's a very sensitive very subject. Clear. Sure, yeah. yeah. So, so what do you have any thoughts as far as 
what do you think's going on here? Like, are you, I know in the first one you were saying you really feel like it could be the cheese factory people. I mean, in that situation, but was anybody involved from like the owners of the cheese factory with the the one that you were talking about in 2005 with the boy No, dog? that's the thing. So he is the common denominator through all of them. And you know, I I almost want to say I think maybe it's one of those kind of people that just they look like they match this part, you know, he's got the degree, he's got the training, but then maybe you just completely botch everything, you know, and so it's like maybe maybe he doesn't need to be in that position. But then at the same time you have these other cases like in Ravens where the police are the ones that made this outlandish claim about him walking off into the night and he's just there agreeing with them. He just went along with it. Right. And so it makes you wonder, like, is he covering up for someone or is he just embarrassed to admit when he's wrong or is he just completely incompetent at his job, you know? Or does he really just not care that much? Does he? Yeah. Does he not care? And the question is, if we know of several of these cases that occurred that we can point out and say, look, there's way too much evidence for this to be correct, how many of them are out there that just no one's caught? You know, he, he made his determination and just no one looked into it further and let it go. Yeah, you know, I think it really does come down to him just not caring because, like, personally, I know if I was an ME and this – much suspicion has been thrown on certain cases that I've reviewed, I would take another look at them. Yeah. I'd be digging through those cases for sure. Yeah. Just I mean, because to make it's, sure. Yeah, I think it's one of those cases where it's this isn't about your pride. It's just about doing the right thing and getting to the bottom of the case because the families deserve that. Yeah, you know, the victims sure. deserve that. The families deserve that. They don't deserve to have every moment of every day for the rest of their lives sitting here wondering and thinking I've done everything I can I've talked to every person I can I've tried to reopen this case a dozen times and I'm just stuck and then it's just on their mind you know they have no closure and that's that's the real shame the real tragedy of all of these cases I believe so I'm going to put these pictures on the Instagram post for this episode here go on there and check those out take a look let us know what you think uh, if you think that Dr. Rob was involved with these or if you think that this is just coincidence or whatever i'd love to hear your thoughts because this is one that i'm i'm not even certain what i believe the actual truth of the matter is whenever it comes to these cases with this doctor the next couple cases that we do will be from romania i've already started looking into a few of those and i've got some that i'm getting excited to record for you guys and again we do upload it twice a week that is on mondays and thursdays so thanks for listening <laughs>